0: Welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. Before I delve into this study guide, I have a quick little correction. In last week's study guide about Zachary Taylor, I said that Dolly Madison was the fourth first lady, which technically isn't true. Yes, she was the wife of the fourth president of the United States, but she was only the third first lady because Thomas Jefferson, the third president's wife, was dead by the time he was president, so he technically didn't have an official first lady. I deeply apologize for my oversight. I am not an expert on the early first ladies, clearly. So, let's talk about today's study guide. The subject is Millard Fillmore. Yet again, we have a president who probably didn't come up in history class, except for the utter hilarity that is his name, but his presidency does include some key moments in the buildup to the American Civil War, like the Compromise of 1850. In addition, his study guide has a fun conspiracy theory, some light flirting with Queen Victoria, and knowing absolutely nothing. Let's begin. Millard Fillmore is born January seventh, 1800, which makes him the first U.S. president to be born in the 19th century. Woo hoo. He is born in Cayuga County in upstate New York, basically right by the modern-day city of Syracuse. His parents are Nathaniel and Phoebe Fillmore. The name Millard is a family name from his mother's side of the family. The Fillmores are poor tenant farmers, and Millard is the second of their eight children. The family did used to have some connections. Nathaniel's family had helped make Vermont, part of the United States, and not part of France, but by the time Millard is born in 1800, the family has fallen on some tough times. They end up moving to New York State because they thought the farming there would be better in Vermont, but thanks to some drama over land titles, they've hit poverty. The family goes up their farm in Cayuga County and instead starts renting a farm by the town Sempronius, New York. Growing up, Millard, and by extension, the general Fillmore clan, has to deal with a lot of poverty. The family is unable to survive on what the farm is able to produce, and young Millard wants to escape this crushing poverty. So, at the age of 14, he attempts to sign up to fight in the War of 1812, which ends up not going super well because his father finds out and is like, yeah, no, we're not doing this, and keeps him from fighting. Then his father decides to apprentice young Millard to work for a cloth maker in a textile mill. This goes terribly. The cloth maker basically treats Millard Fillmore like a glorified slave. In addition to the whole Working in a textile mill, which was never good in the best of circumstances in the early 1800s, Millard also has to be in charge of keeping the company books, which, one, boring, and two, is kind of difficult if you haven't had a formal education, which Millard definitely did not. Millard Fillmore ends up borrowing $30 from the cloth maker and runs off from the whole apprenticeship thing and walks back home. Except the walk back home is over a hundred miles. And Millard Fillmore is only a teenager while he's doing all this. Once he gets back home to Sempronius, New York, he decides that he's had enough. He is not going to let himself get apprenticed out to anyone. He's not going back to the mill. The only way he really sees to improve his lot in life is to get educated. Except, sadly, in Sempronius, New York, there are not that many opportunities for education. Millard starts out by straight up stealing books and teaching himself to read off of those, but that's not exactly sustainable or legal. Luckily, a local circulating library gets started up, and he's able to join that and is able to get slightly more legal access to books, Then he is able to start attending school at a local academy for a few months, starting in 1819, when he is 19 years old. At this local academy, he meets the young school teacher, Abigail Powers. Abigail Powers is two years older than him. She pushes him to keep learning, and pretty soon, Millard is both into the whole education thing and really in to Abigail. In 1819, the same year that he starts attending this local academy, Millard's father gets another job for him. Luckily for Millard and our story, it's it's not another job at a sketchy mill. Instead, it's an apprenticeship with a local judge who just so happens to be the family's landlord. Funny how that works out. Miller takes the job, and as it turns out, he's pretty good at it. There's just one tiny little wrinkle. Theoretically, he's still legally supposed to be working for the cloth maker owner of the textile mill, who he still owes the $30 to, and by working for the judge, well, he's kind of breaking the law. But the judge recognizes Millard's potential and talent and basically pays off the clothmaker so that Millard no longer has to work for him. Initially, the working relationship between Millard and the judge is going pretty smoothly. But then Millard and the judge start arguing a lot. Like, a lot, a lot. As in, after 18 months, Millard basically gets fired. But it's not all bad. He's learned quite a bit about the law, because Millard Fillmore is very smart, and now he has all this time to start courting that pretty young school teacher, Abigail Powers, and he has some career prospects, which means that if he were potentially to propose, her parents wouldn't just immediately turn him down. In 1821, Millard is 21 years old. By the standards of New York State, he is an adult. By this point, his family has moved from Sempronius, New York, to the nearby town of East Aurora, New York, and the family is generally doing better financially. Millard Fillmore stays in East Aurora. He starts teaching at a local school and he also starts to practice some really basic law that doesn't require him to actually have a law license. This is great for him. He's able to start a little practice of his own and make some money. There's just, once again, a problem. He hadn't actually asked his former employer, the judge, if he could do this. Technically, he didn't, have to ask the judge to do this, legally speaking, but it was seen as a nice thing to do. And of course, the judge finds out and is furious, and any good relationship that the two might have had is gone. He is finally officially fired, and he's off on his own now. But Millard isn't too concerned about this. The next year, he moves to Buffalo, New York, which is the closest big town to East Aurora, he starts officially studying law, and the same year he gets engaged to Abigail Powers. Because remember, now he at least has some career prospects, so her family has no reason to turn down the engagement. During his time in Buffalo, New York, he gets admitted to the state bar. He does this within a year of starting to formally practice law, which is a crazy fast turnaround time, and which really shows, to me at least, how talented Millard Fillmore could be, and how when he really put his mind to something, he could get it done. During his time in Buffalo, New York, Millard Fillmore became really focused on his physical appearance. He was terrified of people finding out about his less-than-stellar personal background in judging him for that, so he became obsessed with being impeccably dressed. And in this regard, he reminds me of past study guide subject Martin Van Buren. After passing the state bar and being able to practice whatever sort of law he wanted to, he returned back home to East Aurora and opened up a law practice there, In East Aurora, he was the only lawyer in town, and this confused a lot of his contemporaries. After all, if he had stayed in Buffalo, New York, he could have made a lot more money. There were a lot more opportunities in Buffalo, New York than in the backwater that was East Aurora. However, in East Aurora, he didn't have to worry about being judged or having to face competition. It seemed like Millard Fillmore maybe preferred to be the big fish in the small pond than the small fish in the big pond. A few years later, in 1826, Millard Fillmore finally marries Abigail Powers. The two will eventually have two children, Millard Powers Fillmore and Mary Abigail Fillmore. By the time Millard marries Abigail, he is starting to get involved in local New York politics of the late 1820s, and that means joining a sort of obscure third party, the Anti-Masonic Party, which means we to talk about Freemasons. Basically, the Anti-Masonic Party starts because a lot of major democratic politicians on the national stage, including Andrew Jackson are Freemasons, and this is raising a lot of eyebrows because who doesn't love a good conspiracy theory? A New York guy named William Morgan decides that he was going to uncover the truth about the Freemasons and their connections to Andrew Jackson. But while he is on the hunt for the truth, he vanishes mysteriously so a lot of people become convinced that the Freemasons had murdered him. With the benefit of hindsight, it seems pretty unlikely that the Freemasons murdered William Morgan. He probably just disappeared because that's what happened to people in the 1820s. As a result of the disappearance of William Morgan and the tenuous connection to the Freemasons, we get a ton of anti-Freemason sentiment throughout the country, but especially in upstate New York, which leads to an entire political party around it. And since this political party is super popular in northern rural New York, aka where Millard Fillmore lives, Millard Fillmore is like, heck yeah, I'm mean, going to join this political party. Seems like good to seems like as good a way as any to get ahead in local politics. And it is a really good way for him to get ahead. By 1828, Millard Fillmore has become a delegate to the New York Convention to reendorse John Quincy Adams for president, because remember, John Quincy Adams is running against that super spooky Freemason, Angie Jackson, and during that time, Fillmore also goes to a few anti-Mason conventions. He's so popular at these conventions that by 1829, he becomes a member of the New York State Legislature. During his time in the state legislature, Millard Fillmore becomes seen as very articulate, stately, and very tall, which was clearly people just projecting because, as it turns out, Millard Fillmore was only five feet nine inches tall, and yes, people were shorter back in the 1820s, but I still don't think five feet nine inches was, like, super tall for men at the time. During his time in the state legislature of New York, he's going to serve in the non-democratic party, which is going to be the minority party. Even though he is in the minority, Millard Fillmore is going to be a very effective politician his big act in the legislature is going to be passing a law that would ban imprisoning people for debt. This law is super popular with his constituents because people in upstate New York at the time are not exactly swimming with cash, and it does have that nice tie to his own childhood. By passing this law, Millard Fillmore shows that he is willing to work With the other party, because remember, the legislature is majority Democrat, but that he's not willing to sell out his values. What a dream politician. After getting this law passed, he decides not to run for re election, even though he is still really popular with his constituents, because he wants to be able to spend more time with his family instead of spending all of his time in Albany. What a hero. But as it turns out, he's not going to spend all that much time with his family. In 1832, Millard ends up getting elected to the U.S. to the U.S. House of Representatives, running on a very anti-Andrew Jackson platform. After all, Andrew Jackson is president; he's just gotten re-elected to a second term, and Millard Fillmore hates Andrew Jackson and thinks that he's a total dictator, which means that he's going to join the newly forming Whig Party, which has merged with the anti-Masons that Millard was such a big fan of. During this time, Millard Fillmore also allies with a major New York newspaper publisher, Thurlow Weed. Weed super pro Whig and super anti slavery, and this is going to drive a wedge between the two men. Millard Fillmore doesn't love slavery, but he also thinks the federal government should stay out of the whole endeavor. During his time in the House of Representatives, Fillmore is going to become BFFs with Senator Daniel Webster. The two are going to push for federally funded internal improvements, although Millard Fillmore's priority with these improvements are always going to be New York State-based. For a while, Millard Fillmore is going to leave Congress over drama between the Whigs and the anti-Masons. He's worried that a split between the two parties will mean a victory for the Democrats, so he decides to remove himself from the narrative to prevent the split, but he quickly comes back to Congress by 1836 and continues to rise through the Whig ranks. By 1841, he becomes the chair of the Ways and Means Committee, which is a super big deal because, because he basically gets to handle anything to do with taxes. And by the time he's the chair of the Ways and Means Committee, John Tyler is the president of the United States. John Tyler theoretically was a Whig. He had been the Whig nominee for vice president and then became president when William Henry Harrison died. But as it turns out, John Tyler is a wino, Whig in name only, and is sort of off doing his own thing. As the chair of the Ways and Means Committee, Millard Fillmore is in charge of putting in place a major tariff to protect American industry, aka protecting Northeastern, aka New York interests, aka completely isolating then president and utter failure, John Tyler. Once Millard Fillmore has completed that, he then steps down from Congress because, as he claims, he's sick of all the drama and wants to go back home and hang out with his family. Oh my gosh, how sweet. He is such a family man. Except, once again, as it turns out, family isn't really Millard Fillmore's top priority, because as soon as he's back in New York State, he tries to become the Whig nominee for vice president. Except his BFF, Thurlow Weed, pushes him to run to be the governor of New York instead. This push to become the governor of New York is part of a much larger debate over the direction of New York state politics. And since this is not a podcast about New York state politics, and because honestly, I don't really care about New York state politics or know anything about New York state politics, we're not going to go into that. What we do need to know is that Millard Fillmore ends up losing the race to be governor of New York, in a very close vote. This loss completely destroys his relationship with the weed. And in the process of losing the vote, Millard Fillmore is going to blame the immigrant vote, especially the Catholic immigrant vote, which isn't great and which is going to have pretty large ramifications for some of Fillmore's later policies. Once the whole gubernatorial election had failed, Millard Fillmore then spends the next few years away from politics, actually living with his family for once. He's sort of back into the shadows, but he's still pretty well known and pretty popular within New York State. In 1847, he is given the job of comptroller of New York State, which means he is essentially the CFO of New York State. This is a major position within New York. So once again, he is really prominent on the state field. His name is sort of being spoken again, but only on a state level. He is not a national figure by any means. But because he's so big on the New York level, he is invited to the 1848 Whig Convention. Going into the 1848 Whig Convention, he is pushing a lot of support behind the presidential nomination of either Henry Clay, who he agrees with politically, including on the idea of some sort of compromise when it comes to slavery, or behind the presidential bid of his old BFF, Daniel Webster. He thinks that if either man gets the nominee for president, he can slip in as their VP. However, most of the Northern Whigs hate Henry Clay because, remember, Henry Clay is from the South and owns slaves. And then as the convention develops and develops, we get two sort of random people rising through the ranks as possible nominees, Zachary Taylor and Winfield Scott who are now super popular in the Whig Party, even though they have no political experience because they were both generals in the Mexican-American War. As we might recall from last week's study guide, Zachary Taylor ends up getting the Whig nomination thanks to his Military bona fides, even though he has absolutely no political experience. The fact that Zachary Taylor, a slave owner from the South, gets the Whig nominee makes a lot of the Northerners super angry. So suddenly they need a Northern Whig to be the vice president. Daniel Webster is offered the position of VP, and he says, No, not interested. Zachary Taylor sucks. I want nothing to do with him. But he suggests Millard Fillmore. He's like, here's a guy who can do things. YOLO, why not? We've actually never needed a VP before, except for that one time with William Henry Harrison. But who counts that? So suddenly, Millard Fillmore, who hasn't really had that much political experience either, is the Whig nominee for vice president. If you want a lot of details about the 1848 election, you can listen to the Zachary Taylor episode, but as a quick rundown, neither side really campaigns that much. The Whigs are hoping that Zachary Taylor's reputation as a military hero will carry the day, and surprise, surprise, it does. The Whigs basically win because Zachary Taylor is so popular, and because we have this third, smaller party the Liberty Party slash the Free Soil Party that really pulls votes from the Democrats in hopes the Whigs win. Because the Democrats are nothing but the party that loses, thanks to third-party candidates. Throughout the 1848 election, neither Zachary Taylor nor Millard Fillmore actually campaigned which is probably a good thing, because as it turns out, Millard Fillmore and Zachary Taylor do not get along at all. They come from very different backgrounds, which probably was a cause for that. Nationally, Millard Fillmore is seen as this slightly snooty gentleman, while Zachary Taylor is the ever-relatable old rough-and-ready, even though in reality the opposite was true. Zachary Taylor came from a fairly wealthy slave-owning family, whereas Millard Fillmore really did have to pull himself up by his bootstraps and came from a family that left in pretty horrifying poverty. Millard Fillmore basically got shut out of the Taylor presidency, none of his allies, got seats on the Taylor cabinet, he wasn't really informed of what was going on. The two were not close. very much reminds me, yet again, of Harrison and Tyler. So throughout most of the Zachary Taylor residency, Millard Fillmore is just, you know, living in Washington, doing his own thing. And then on July 4th, 1850, Zachary Taylor gets sick from eating those cherries and drinking that milk. And about a week later, he dies. And suddenly, Millard Fillmore, this rando from New York who no one knows, is president. And he becomes president at a really bad time. Because as we remember from last week's study guide, we were right in the middle of a very, very angry debate about what to do with California's attempt to become a free state. So let's quickly recap that whole debate. Basically, California had become a territory in 1848 as part of the whole Mexican-American War. Thanks to the whole gold rush thing, America's population shot up so quickly that within two years, California had a big enough population to qualify to be a state. And California wanted to be a free state, which is fair because California is a beautiful place that vaguely recognizes basic human rights there was just a slight issue. One, the southern bit of California was below the whole Missouri compromise line thing. And two, if California became a free state, the balance of free and slave states in the Senate would be thrown off, which would make the southern states extremely pissed off. So we need to reach some sort of a compromise. Henry Clay had been doing his best to work out some sort of giant compromise bill, which is what Henry Clay does best. His suggestion was to allow California to come in as a free state, and in order to make the southern slave-owning states happy, there would be an updated fugitive slave law, the decision over what to do about slavery in New Mexico and Utah territories, would be put on hold, and maybe we would outlaw the slave trade in D.C. It looked really nice, except there were some issues about this fugitive slave law that made northerners be a little unsure For example, it removed due process from fugitive slaves, it allowed huge fines for white people who tried to help fugitive slaves, and it possibly would allow freed African Americans to be sold back into slavery. But no one really wanted to, like, get into the messiness of that quite yet. John C. Calhoun had suggested A completely different compromise that was much more radical and would have undone a lot of the Missouri compromise and would have set up this weird system of like two rotating presidents. But before we could have gotten really deep into that, he had died. So we're not really going to even talk about that. As soon as Millard Fillmore became president, he was like, Yeah, we need a compromise like yesterday. He gets rid completely of the Zachary Taylor cabinet and replaces it with an entirely new cabinet full of people who really want to figure out some sort of compromise when it comes to California and the slave issue. This cabinet is really going to be led by his BFF, Dam- Daniel Webster, who is a big fan of compromise. Also, as a fun fact, Daniel Webster went to the same college that I went to, Cooper Green. Woo! this compromise bill does end up getting through. It is known as the Compromise of 1850. Theoretically, it is five distinct bills. Each one does get passed, but it's easier just to talk about it as one giant bill. So what is in the Compromise of 1850? California becomes a free state. This is why California, when the Civil War happens, we'll fight on the Union side. That is why we have Union Square up in San Francisco. Next bit. Utah and New Mexico stay as territories, and as territories, the decision about whether to be free or slave territories will be determined by the people living in the territory, which sets up this idea known as popular sovereignty, which is going to be super important down the line. The next idea is that we won't have a slave trade anymore in Washington, D.C. Yes, those southern politicians can keep their slaves, but you can't buy and sell them anymore in the capital city. We also get this new updated fugitive slave law, which is super unpopular and controversial thanks to the removal of due process and these fines and the whole, maybe we can so freed African Americans back into slavery, but it still passes. And then finally, as like a little side note, we finally established a border between New Mexico and Texas, because apparently there hadn't been a border between the two for two years, which is slightly problematic. Even though the Compromise of 1850 was important and was a thing that needed to happen, it was super unpopular on Both sides of the political aisle between the North and the South. People in the North hate the Fugitive Slave Act. It is basically going to be ignored up until the Civil War, while people in the South are really annoyed that California came in as a free state. They're annoyed that California wasn't split into two states, which, shut up. California as one giant state is a beautiful thing, And they're pissed that the Fugitive Slave Act isn't being enforced. So they start bugging Millard Fillmore about this. The next year, in 1851, Millard Fillmore is like, okay, fine, I will start enforcing this new law, and he kind of oversteps. The US government starts charging people who try to help escape slaves with treason, and everyone freaks the fuck out. The Supreme Court says, yeah, violating the Fugitive Slave Act isn't actually treason. Millard Fillmore's home state, New York, is extremely against this. We literally get armed militias that are organizing to keep slaves from being sent back to the South. And while armed militias are never a good thing, in this case, I am firmly on their side. Because of the Fugitive Slave Act, we start getting into the situation where it's no longer enough for slaves just to escape up north. We start seeing this whole, you have to go all the way up to Canada to fully be free. Merlord Fillmore then tries the classic appease to appease everyone, but pleasing no one. He sends General Winfold Scott of Mexican-American War fame down to strengthen federal forts in the South because we are hearing rumblings about Southern states maybe splitting off, and Millard Fillmore is like, no, no, that is not an option, but that's not really. Yeah, I'm not sure how much that worked. In addition to having to deal with the whole slavery thing, the country is still moving on. There are other concerns that Millard has to deal with. He does do a decent job of setting up internal improvement projects. We see a huge growth in railroads, especially in the north, and who doesn't love a good train? He also officially sets up Utah territory as a thing. He appoints Brigham Young as governor, and as a thank you for this, Brigham Young is going to name the capital of Utah Fillmore, but obviously that's not going to last too long. And then there's foreign policy. Millard Fillmore is going to be very smart and make Daniel Webster the Secretary of State, because Daniel Webster is amazingly competent when it comes to foreign affairs. The really major thing that's gonna happen for Millard Fillmore when it comes to foreign affairs is Japan. In 1852, he sends Commodore Matthew Perry, no relation to the Friends actor, as far as I know, to Japan. And this is sort of gonna be the moment that Japan gets opened to the rest of the world, which is like a really gross, very like Western imperial term to use, but it's like the classic term you see in history textbooks. For a context, Japan had been very isolated before this for a bunch of reasons, and, like, they very much wanted to be isolated. Thank you very much. But Japan would be a really great resupply point for American ships on the way to Asian markets. So the U.S. government is like, fuck Japan's feelings. We want to use them as a resupply point. We're bringing up the gunships and now japan is being forced to interact with other nations which definitely won't have any consequences down the line and in honor of that moment i've actually been sipping on this really nice sencha green tea from japan it has dried ginger and dried tomatoes in it and i bought it from this artisanal tea company in chicago and i would highly Recommend it. In addition to Japan, Millard Fillmore is also going to be getting involved in the Pacific and in Central America. During his presidency, France, weirdly, tries to force the King of Hawaii to sign an annexation treaty to force Hawaii to become a French colony, and Millard Fillmore is like, No, no, that is not happening. If anyone is taking over Hawaii, it will be of the United States in the 1870s, 1880s, and 1890s. Thank you very much. Thanks to the Clayton-Bulwer Treaty, which I talked about in previous episodes, Fillmore is also going to continue U.S. involvement in Central America. He's going to block England from getting further involved in Central America in terms of shipping and canals, but he's going to have to deal with Southerners trying to take over Central American countries, which is less good. Basically, a bunch of Southerners are like, huh, westward expansion of slavery isn't really looking like a possibility anymore. What if we take over Cuba and turn that into a slave state? Isn't that a cute little idea? In 1851, this Venezuelan named Narciso Lopez leads an expedition from New Orleans to take Cuba over from Spain and turn it into a slave colony. The Lopez expedition completely fails and he ends up getting executed, but it shows that Millard Fillmore is maybe losing control of the plot because he had tried to stop Lopez, but no one had listened. This is a huge loss for Fillmore when it comes to foreign policy. In other foreign policy, we still have these liberal uprisings going on in Europe. Millard Fillmore isn't really going to get involved because he's too busy dealing and feeling with the whole slavery question. The last big thing going on in the Fillmore presidency is social stuff. What about the parties, you might be asking? Answer, there aren't really any. Millard Fillmore's wife is sick and is suffering from a series of ankle problems, and as a result, can't host any big events, which is definitely the excuse I use when I don't want to go out. Also, Millard Fillmore personally doesn't drink and he doesn't smoke, so instead of having giant social events, he spends most of his time upstairs reading like a total nerd while his daughter plays the piano. By 1852, Millard Fillmore made it pretty clear that he wasn't going to be running for president again. He literally had a friend of his write an article in a major newspaper saying that he was going to retire. And that makes sense. His term hadn't exactly gone well. His His BFF, Daniel Webster, said that instead he was going to be the Whig nominee for president. But then the Whig party tried to talk him back into it. They were afraid that Webster was too old to run for president, which was a fair concern given that Daniel Webster died in the run-up to the actual 1852 convention. The Whig nominating convention was torn between nominating Fillmore, Webster, or General Winfield Scott. Fillmore did lead on the opening ballots, but Daniel Webster stayed in the race and started pulling votes from Fillmore, and then delegates from both Fillmore and Webster ended up going to Scott. Winfield Scott ended up winning the Whig nomination on the 53rd ballot, but Southern Whigs didn't exactly like Winfield Scott because he had pushed against the whole succeeding over slavery thing, and nominating him ended up completely splitting the Whig party on regional lines, which then made it very easy for the Democratic nominee, Franklin Pierce, to win the 1852 election. But that is a story for next week's study guide. After his term was over, Millard Fillmore probably was expecting a nice, quiet life. He did not get it his wife Abigail died almost immediately after his presidency was over. She had gotten sick during Franklin Pierce's inauguration due to the cold weather, and she ended up developing pneumonia, which killed her. Soon after Abigail's death, Fillmore's daughter Mary developed cholera and died. Either one of these deaths would have been difficult to deal with, but both of them, so close to each other, were really hard On Millard Fillmore, to deal with the death of his wife and daughter, and just to generally take a break, Millard Fillmore decided to travel to Europe. During his time in England, he met Queen Victoria, who said that he was extremely handsome. And for context, at the time, he was 53 years old, and she was around 34. He also was given an honorary doctorate from Oxford University, but he turned it down for reasons that are unclear. He also went to Rome and met the Pope and caused a bit of drama because he refused to kiss the Pope's hand because he was a Catholic. This drama ended up being dealt with by having the Pope just stay seated and not stand. After this trip through Europe, he came back to the United States and promptly returned to politics. The Whigs no longer had a party thanks to this regional split, and the remnants of the party wanted to create a new party to counter the Democrats. So we get the rise of what became known as the Know-Nothing Party. The Know-Nothing Party was very much based around anti-immigrant rhetoric, especially anti-Catholic immigrant rhetoric, and making it harder for new citizens to vote. Millard Fillmore didn't necessarily love that bit of the party, although remember he had blamed Catholic immigrants for his failure to become governor of New York, but he still became their nominee for president in 1856. As their nominee, he did manage to get a lot of former Whigs to join the Know Nothing Party. In the 1856 election, Millard Fillmore received about 20% of the vote as the Know Nothing nominee. And for a third-party candidate, that is pretty impressive. As a Know Nothing candidate, he did siphon away a bunch of anti-democratic votes from the newly formed Republican Party and their nominee, John C. Fremont, which I talked about in the John C. Fremont tangent cast. Millard Fillmore's role as the nominee for the Know Nothings probably did cost John C. Fremont the White House, and probably had some huge ramifications for the eventual development of the Civil War. Millard Fillmore did not like John C. Fremont. He felt that Fremont was too radical when it came to slavery, and like I said, this probably meant that John C. Fremont did not win the election, It meant that James Buchanan, who I will be covering soon, got the presidency, which we can all agree was a huge mistake. After the 1856 election, he moved back to Buffalo, New York, and retired from politics for good. He ended up marrying a widow, Caroline McIntosh, in 1850, and from then on out was no longer a public political figure. By the time 1860 came around, Millard Fillmore slowly in my opinion at least, started to redeem himself. During the Civil War, he was very much on the side of the Union. He would meet with Abraham Lincoln and started to turn away from his early pro-conspiracy beliefs, so good for him. He began to turn away from his slightly more ambivalent pro-slavery beliefs, so once again, Good for him. He raised money for the war and for soldiers and really helped with enlistment drives to get people to sign up to join the Union. So once again, good for him. Millard Fillmore, in a really funny move in my opinion, organized a group of home guards, aka old men, to protect upstate New York in case the Confederates tried to invade upstate New York which obviously was not going to happen, but I guess it's the thought that counts. However, a lot of people still blamed him for the Civil War due to his support of the Fugitive Slave Act and the fact that he did not support Lincoln's reelection campaign in the 1864 election. Because of this, when Lincoln was assassinated, people painted his house black in protest. He did, however, escort Lincoln's body for part of its trip back to Illinois. Once the Civil War was over, Fillmore really focused on making Buffalo a major city in the United States. For example, he hoped to get a permanent art gallery, which was a huge deal. I think Buffalo was the third city in the U.S. to get a permanent art gallery, but please do not quote me on that. By the 1870s, Millard Fillmore's health was starting to pretty majorly decline. In February 1874, he had a stroke, which was the first time in his life that he was sick, and on March 8, 1874, he had a second stroke and died at the age of 74. So, for those fans of the study guide who prefer bullet points to lectures, here is a quick recap of Millard Fillmore. Millard Fillmore was, was born in 1800 in upstate New York, Two fairly poor tenant farmers. He grew up in pretty serious poverty. It was so bad that at the age of 14 he tried to run away to join the army, which is never a good sign. As a result of his family's poverty, Millard Fillmore did not get a formal education. Instead, as a teenager, he was apprenticed to work for a clothmaker at a textile mill, which he absolutely hated. Instead of working for this, textile mill, he ran away, returned home, and basically became self-taught via books that he stole and via a circulating library. By the time he was 19, Millard Fillmore managed to start learning at a local academy where he met and fell in love with the teacher, Abigail Powers, who would eventually become his wife. At around the same time, he started working for a local judge, aka the family's landlord. While Millard and the judge did not get along super well, the judge did teach him a lot about the law, and within two years, once he was legally an adult, Millard Fillmore started a bit of an unofficial practice of his own. He then moved to Buffalo, New York, where he started studying law. Within a year, he passed the state bar, which was a crazy fast turnaround time. He started practicing law and became obsessed with his appearance and making sure that no one knew about his humble beginnings, much like Martin Van Buren. Within a few years, he and Abigail were married and were popping out a few kids, and he was practicing law full-time. Not satisfied with being a small-town lawyer, Millard Fillmore joined local politics, which in the early 1800s in upstate New York meant joining the anti-Masonic party, which was just full of fun conspiracy theories. But Millard knew what he was doing. He quickly became elected to the New York state legislature, where he made a name for himself by passing a state law that banned imprisoning people for debt. After that, He joined the House of Representatives, where he became close friends with Senator Daniel Webster. He worked his way up to be chair of the Ways and Means Committee, which was a major House committee. He tussled with President John Tyler, got some stuff done, and then decided he stepped down from Congress to focus on the family. Spoiler, he did not focus on this family. Instead, he tried to become governor of New York, lost in a very close election, blamed the immigrants, and then laid low for a bit. In 1848, for various reasons, he somehow managed to become the vice president for Zachary Taylor. He didn't have that much to do for, vice, for as vice president, as is usually the case, until Zachary Taylor miraculously died thanks to some bad cherries. Suddenly, this nobody from New York was a somebody. He Was president. The big issue on the table was what the fuck to do with California. Millard Fillmore, with the help of Daniel Webster, managed to push through the Compromise of 1850, which made absolutely nobody happy. The Compromise of 1850 included some fun things like bringing California in as a slave, bringing California in as a free state, banning the slave trade in Washington, D.C., deciding on the border between New Mexico and Texas, allowing the very strict Fugitive Slave Act, and letting Utah and New Mexico decide for themselves whether or not to be free or slaves. The Fugitive Slave Act was amazingly unpopular because it basically got rid of due process for escaped slaves and the North basically ignored it, which made the South extremely angry. This would plague Millard Fillmore for the rest of his presidency. He also worked on various other things in foreign affairs, the biggest of which was the opening of Japan by Friends actor Matthew Perry. By 1852, it was pretty clear that Millard Fillmore was done being president he did not seek re-election, and in the process, the Whig Party kind of imploded, making it very easy for Franklin Pierce to win the election as a Democrat. After the presidency, his wife and daughter both died almost immediately thanks to some fun freak illnesses, aka living in the 1800s. To get over these deaths, Millard Fomer took a nice little European tour flirted with Queen Victoria, and came back to the U.S., where he immediately joined a fun new conspiracy-oriented third party, the Know-Nothing Party, which was all about anti-immigration rhetoric, which would mean that our current president would absolutely love it. With this third party, Millard Fillmore ran for president yet again in 1856, winning about 20% of the vote, nationwide siphoning off votes from the Republicans, which allowed James Buchanan to get the presidency. After 1856, he left politics for good, moved up to New York, married a widow, and basically stayed out of it. Although during the Civil War, he did organize for the Union and kind of became friends with Abraham Lincoln. Was that enough to redeem him? Probably not. Millard Fillmore ended up dying in 1874 at the age of 74. In terms of presidents, Millard Fillmore definitely isn't a good one. Really, the only thing he has to redeem himself is his name and the fact that during the Civil War, he did try to raise money for Union soldiers. The Compromise of 1850 was obviously a failure, except for the fact that it brought California into the United States, and as a Californian, I like that. Everything else he did was pretty not great, he liked conspiracies too much, and he was hugely anti-immigrant, which is never a good sign. So no points for you, Millard Fillmore. In terms of sources, most of my research for this episode came from the Michael Holt essays for the Miller Center, Paul Finkelman's book, Millard Fillmore, Robert Scary's book, Millard Fillmore, and Robert Rayback's Millard Fillmore, Biography of the President. As always, for a full bibliography, as well as images, you can visit the website sadgirlstudyguides.com. Next week's study guide is going to be about probably the saddest president ever. Oh my gosh, you guys, he's so sad and so handsome, Franklin Pierce. I'm also going to be releasing a tangent cast for members of the Patreon. For patrons on Patreon. It's going to be about my favorite pretty harmless utopian cult, Leonida. If you like bigamy in nice silverware, check it out. It'll be for patrons at the $5 level or above at patreon.com forward slash sadgirlstudyguides. As always, you can reach me on social media, on Twitter at sadgirlstudypod, or on Instagram for the memes at Study. The best way to help the podcast grow is to tell a friend or, or subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. And please let me know how I'm doing, rate or review, or else I'll be sad. Thanks!